Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening to the BreastCancer.org podcast. Our guest is marathon swimmer Sarah Thomas, whom some of you may have heard about. In September 2019, Sarah did something that had never been done before. She swam the English Channel four times nonstop, and she did this a year after completing treatment for stage two breast cancer. Sarah started swimming lessons at age one and was on a year-round swim team by age 10. She swam on her high school team and in college at the University of Connecticut, where she studied political science and journalism. She took a break from swimming while earning a master's degree at the University of Denver, but joined a master's swim team after graduating. In August 2017, Sarah swam 104.6 miles in Lake Champlain, the first current neutral open water swim of more than 100 miles and the world record for the longest unassisted open water swim. In November 2017, while planning her English Channel swim, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 35. Today, we're going to talk to Sarah about her journey through breast cancer and her English Channel swim. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So in 2017, you're at the top of your sport after finishing that Lake Champlain swim. Then you find a lump in your breast. Can you take us through how you found the lump and what you did after that? Sure. So I was just doing kind of my routine monthly self-exam, like they tell us our whole lives that we need to be doing. And I noticed a lump and... I ignored it for maybe longer than I should have, hoping that it might go away, um, seeing if it was going to change or anything like that. It did not. Um, I talked to my husband and he said, Sarah, quit being stupid. Make a doctor's appointment now. Uh, So I made a doctor's appointment with my primary care physician and went in to see her. Um, I was trying to be all casual about it. Like I have this, it's probably no big deal, but I could tell pretty quickly that she was concerned about it. So, you know, she took my medical history. We have no family history of breast cancer in my family at all. You know, I was only 35. Um, but she said, Sarah, you need a mammogram like right away. So she gave me the referral and she said, you know, take the first appointment they have available, even if it's not at a good location for you. So I followed her directions and it took maybe a couple of weeks to get in to see the doctor for a mammogram. Um, They did the mammogram. They took me right back for an ultrasound. And then the doctor came in and said, you know, I don't like what I'm seeing. I think we need to do a biopsy right now. But, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time and I'm pretty sure that you have breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the emotions that you felt? I mean, it's got to be pretty shocking. You were 35, no family history. Yeah, it was definitely shocking. Um, I went into the mammogram alone. Uh, My husband had offered to come with me and I did not think that they would actually tell me anything definitive at that appointment. So, you know, I'm laying on my back with my arm over my head. And when the doctor came in and said those words that, you know, I'm pretty sure you have breast cancer, you know, I was numb probably for the next hour or so trying to process that, you know, she was really kind and, you know, answered questions and talked to me about next steps. But I think in that moment, you're just processing 
And it wasn't until I had to call my husband after I left the appointment and tell him that I really broke down. You know, I was in the middle of downtown Denver on a November evening and it was dark out. It was rush hour. Um, and I'm sitting in my truck, you know, trying to figure out how to tell him that it is what we thought. And it was worse than we thought. Mm-hmm. And you, you said you did say you had no family history of mm-hmm. breast cancer. Was there any cancer at all in your family? Nothing notable. Um, one of my grandfathers had lung cancer, but he was a lifelong smoker. So when you go through family history, they always say, oh, that one doesn't count. Uh, so no, no real history, you know, took me and my whole family by surprise. Okay. Now you, if my understanding is correct, you were already planning your English Channel swim when you got this diagnosis. And yeah. so as you're thinking, you know, talking to your doctors about treatments, did you have to think about maybe certain treatments or or types of surgery might affect your ability to swim or your ability to Mm -hmm. swim very long distances? Mm -hmm. And did you modify any of your treatments because of that? We definitely talked about it quite a bit. Um, I'm lucky that my oncologist, her husband has swum the English Channel and oh, so wow. she, yeah, so she understands my mentality and what it takes and all that. So really, really fortunate to have her as my oncologist and her understanding of what my body needed to be able to do. Um, we did not change anything as far as my chemo treatments went. Um, we followed, you know, the standard protocol of um, ACT. And we did that first. Um, When we came time to talk about my mastectomy, we really did have a lot of discussions with both my oncologist and with my surgeons about what was the best tactic to take for my swimming and to meet my medical needs. Um, Everyone was pretty clear with me that I definitely needed a right-sided mastectomy, that they would not recommend a lumpectomy. Um, I had two tumors in my right breast and one lymph node was impacted. So they really didn't want to do a lumpectomy. I had that really hard conversation with myself and with doctors about if I wanted to do just a right-sided mastectomy or both sides, and then what my options for reconstruction were. My husband was actually a big proponent of um, doing the mastectomy and then just leaving my right side flat so that we weren't Um, impacting any of my muscle groups um, Mm -hmm. with the reconstruction. Um, I had to do a lot of soul searching and we ultimately decided to kind of follow a traditional reconstruction with an under the pec muscle um, tissue expander and then to an implant later on. Lots of discussion with my plastic surgeon about how that might impact my swimming down the road. And he didn't know what to tell me. Um, He's obviously never had someone like me come through his doors. So it was kind of fun to see his face and try and get him to process, you know, exactly what I was asking of him. So he was really understanding and supportive, which was nice to be able to have those honest discussions with him. Sure. And I I guess if if you don't mind discussing, did you Mm -hmm. think at all about um, autologous reconstruction, like using your own tissue? Because a lot of that you know, involves transferring Mm -hmm. muscle, sometimes muscle, sometimes just, just tissue from other parts of the body. And it seems Mm -hmm. like that would also really affect your ability to swim or swim long distances. Yeah. We definitely talked about that. And that was kind of discarded early on as not a really good option for me, just as far as the length of recovery 
was going to be um, and the toll that it might take on my body in the long term. So, yeah, we didn't even we kind of discussed it and then moved on pretty quickly from that option. Okay. Okay. And as you're going through the various, you know, the, the chemotherapy, then the surgery, the reconstruction, you were continuing to swim. Yeah. As much as I could, I swam, you know, probably an an average between three to four times a week during chemo. Um, it was a promise to myself that I would swim every morning before my chemo treatment. So my chemo was always on a Thursday. So, um, I, come into the doctor's office, you know, they'd be taking my vitals and like, Sarah, you're like sweating and your heart rate's still kind of high. And I'm like, I just got out of the pool. Um, you know, and at first they were like, what are you doing? And then kind of, as we went on, they understood. And, um, the whole medical team in my oncologist's office was really supportive of that. Um, you know, I didn't have a ton of issues during chemo. Um, you know, obviously I was fatigued and tired and all of that fun stuff. But, you know, as we were going on, they were kind of suggesting that they thought maybe my level of activity was helping me handle chemo a little bit better than it might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's what I was wondering. I mean, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of research on that, but right. it, it sort of intuitively makes sense when you mm-hmm. think about it. Yep. So did, um, did you have to think at all about where you swam? Um, it sounds like you were swimming in a pool and I, I know that you're mostly an out door Mm -hmm. swimmer, open water swimmer. Um, Obviously, if you're in chemo, your immune system is suppressed. Mm -hmm. And in some of the open water, there could be bacteria, various, you know, things that can infect you. Did you talk about that at all or think about that? We did. Um, My chemo started in December and ended May 1st. So kind of maybe somewhat fortunately, most of my swimming during that time was just forced to be in the swimming pool. Okay. Um, just because you know, I live in Denver and it's a little cold outside in December <laughs> and January sure. for outdoor swimming. But um, I will say once we got into April, I started talking to my doctor about, okay, you know, spring swimming is coming. Can I get in the lake? And she didn't really have any concerns about it. Um, they wanted me to always wait 48 hours after a chemo treatment before I got wet just to make sure my port was all healed up. Okay. But otherwise, you know, I was mostly healthy. My white blood cell count was pretty consistent throughout all of it. And she said, as long as I wasn't like drinking the water, she wasn't too worried about what I was doing. Okay. Okay. Now, as you're, you're going through treatment, did you ever have any doubts that you might not be able to finish this, the four crossings of the English channel that you had been planning? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I would say, you know, I finished treatment last September and I had, you know, about a year to get ready for this swim. And I will say, you know, going through treatment and then trying to build my training back up over this last year, I had a, a lot of doubts. You just don't know what kind of training your body can handle. Um, structurally, my body was different because now I have you know, this fake implant under my pec muscle. So you just don't know what, I just didn't know what was going to happen and how I would be able to handle it. You know, my plastic surgeon kept saying, well, we'll see what you can tolerate. We'll just see how it goes. And, you know, I just kept pushing and kept trying and kept building slowly and working with my PT when I was having some shoulder issues. So, you know, we, we built up to it. I built in 
build up to it carefully and smart. Um, I definitely found that I was needing more sleep over the last year than I maybe needed in the past. I'm definitely not quite as fast as I was prior to my cancer diagnosis. And that made me doubt a lot of my ability. But, you know, I built in some really big training swims throughout the last year just to kind of test myself and push myself. And those all went really well. So I, you know, I went into it thinking, you know, I was as prepared as I could possibly be. And we would just see what happened. Okay. I mean, that's, that's fair. You can't really ask for more than that, right? Right. Exactly. Okay. Now I, I have some um, perhaps indelicate questions because sure. the, the, the channel swim took 54 hours. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Around. Yep. And yep. so I'm not a marathon swimmer. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are, that's a really long time mm-hmm. to be by yourself in the water. So sure. I, like, what do you think about how do you eat? How do you go to the bathroom? How do you stay sure. awake? Like, how do you how do you do all those things? And, sure. and, you know, I'm sure some of it, like you said, you were fatigued, like staying awake. Mm-hmm. Was that harder, you think, because of, you know, having finished treatment? Sure. Um, so part of when you're doing a marathon swim, you do have a boat support next to you. So I had a boat that was, you know, following the GPS and guiding me. And on that boat is a team of people. So we had three people that were there just to drive the boat. And we had two people there who were the official observers to make sure that I was following all the rules and we didn't cheat and all of that good stuff. And then I had five of my own teammates and they kind of rotated in in and out. Um, they were sleeping and resting and then looking after me kind of all at the same time during those 54 hours. So it is my team's job to throw me nutrition so we just have a, a <laughs> water bottle. It sounds like they're feeding a dolphin. <laughs> yes, it feels like that sometimes. Because, um, like, I'm just in the water and, you know, I have a water bottle. It's mostly liquids. And they toss it down to me and I drink it. And then they pull it back up attached <laughs> to the string. So I do. Okay. I feel like it's feeding the fish. Um, <laughs> and you do. You get... Um, you know, you're, you are so stuck in your head. You know, I wear earplugs while I'm swimming, so I can hear them, but not very well. Everything's really muffled. And then you've got goggles on as well. And so you, you can see, but everything is a little bit distorted. So, you know, between the goggles and the earplugs, you're, you are really kind of in your own world. So you do, you know, you spend a lot of time with your thoughts and just, reflecting on everything and anything. And a lot of times you're thinking about absolutely nothing, but you do kind of get to this like animal like state almost where, you know, you're just in the routine and your crew is feeding you. And all you do is just swim for hours and hours. You know, I have become a master at peeing while I swim. (laughs) You know, when you first get into open water swimming, that's what they tell you is like, you have to learn how to pee while you're swimming. So you don't have to like stop and take a pee break. So I can just kind of pee on the go while I'm swimming. Yeah. You just kind of take care of business. If I need something, I tell my crew what I need and they do their best to get it for me. And, and you don't get any breaks or sleeping time. I mean, you're awake for that whole right. 54 hours. Yes. So do you, I guess, I, I don't even know how to ask this question. Like, is it the adrenaline that keeps you going or you just know you have to, um, stay awake for that long? And are you a little yeah. kind of hallucinatory when you get out, when you finish? Yeah. I would say it's a little bit of all of the above. Um, adrenaline definitely does keep you kind of on the move. Um, also the fear of drowning also keeps you <laughs> alert. Uh, 
it's not really ideal to try and take a nap while you're face down in the water. And then I do consume a little bit of caffeine while I'm swimming. So usually somewhere between hour 30 and hour 36 is when I start to feel a little bit drowsy and I don't drink caffeine normally. So just like a little tiny bit, like the equivalent of a cup of tea every few hours really perks me up quite a bit. So that definitely helps keep me alert and awake so that I'm not trying to take a nap when I'm swimming. <laughs> yeah. um, when I was kind of very first, like looking into multi-day swims, um, this English Channel swim was the third time I've been awake for more than a couple of days in a row. Um, I did research and you do hallucinate is what everyone said. You know, after a couple of days, you'll start to hallucinate. But fortunately, I have never actually hallucinated. Um, I'm usually pretty alert. Um, I can have pretty coherent conversations with my team. Um, they're always kind of impressed, you know, three days on, I can tell them where we're at and what's going on and, you know, still be giving directions after 54 hours awake. So um, I don't know if that's just a genetic gift that I have or what, but it's, Nice that that isn't a huge struggle for me. Yeah, that's uh, that's very impressive. So as you're in the water and you're doing this swim, was there a point when you said, yes, I know I'm going to finish this, I can do this? You know, um, when I made the last turn in France, I was pretty confident. Um, I'd had some rough points during um, the second and third lap, and we had kind of resolve those issues. And I was actually feeling pretty strong. So when we headed, you know, into that last lap back to England, I was feeling pretty confident that we weren't going to have any issues and we were going to be fine. But then the tide turned early on me and we went a little bit off course. And, you know, my first two laps, I think took 11 and a half hours, 12 hours and like 13 and a half hours. And so the last lap ended up taking like around 17 hours just because the currents and tides were just really playing tricks with us. And so that whole last lap, especially kind of starting into the evening until I actually landed, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that the tides were going to cooperate and let us get into shore. Well, that had to be a little, I guess, unnerving if that's mm -hmm. the, the right word. Yeah. And then, <laughs> so, and then did you kind of have an agreement with yourself? Like if X, Y, and Z happens, I'll call it off. Or you just kind of said, let's see what happens. I think I can do it. We're stick it out. Yeah. That's, I mean, my longest swim took me 67 hours. So, oh, know, so this was a piece of cake. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally easy. Um, but yeah, I knew that I still had a lot left in the tank. So really the agreement with my crew and my team was that as long as I was physically fine, we were going to keep swimming until we made it. Um, there, yeah, just knowing what my ability was, we were just going to go for it until we knew that it was either going to be impossible or I physically wasn't able to continue. So do you think that uh, breast cancer and then also the swim changed you in any way? I would say that breast cancer probably more so than the swim changed me. Um, you know, I've always been pretty driven and headstrong to start with, but now after going through cancer and treatment, you know, I feel like I have almost more of an obligation to, you know, live my best life and, you know, be outspoken to other people going through what I'm going that, you know, you don't have to give up hope. And I just think, I don't know, that is a bigger part of me now, more so than it was prior to this. You know, before this, I was really happy to just do my swims and, you know, call it a day and 
not talk about them a whole lot. Just, you know, they're interesting and fun, but it's just kind of a personal hobby. And now I feel like I have an obligation to other survivors out there to share my story and just make sure that they know that there's life after cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, are you planning more swims, perhaps longer, shorter, anything big? So I honestly don't have anything scheduled for the next year or so. This English Channel swim and just getting through the end of my treatment has been kind of my big focus for a really long time now. So I just wanted to get through this, but I will say in the wintertime, I start to get a little antsy when I'm not able to get in the open water. So I am sure that come January or February, I'll have schemed up something else. (laughs) Ah, Okay. That sounds good. And I guess for my last question, what do you want people to know about breast cancer? Breast cancer is a really real disease. And I think sometimes People get caught up in, oh, it's an easy cancer to have. And, you know, the success rate in, is, you know, really high. So, yeah, it sucks that you have cancer, but, you know, it's just breast cancer. Um, and that is just so false. And I hate that mentality because, you know, the treatment is brutal. It's hard. You know, women die from breast cancer. And, you know, just the more recognition that we can get out there that, we still need support. We still need research funds. You know, there's still a lot of advances in treatment that can help a lot of women, especially those with metastatic breast cancer and people who have triple negative breast cancer like mine. We still need that support. Okay. Sarah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your story. Yes, you are very welcome. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.